Welcome to this very special episode of the CineLit Podcast. Now, last July, we covered the release of the Sean Hogan book, England's Screaming, a book that attempted to create a common history between English horror films of the 21st and 20th century. It's essentially a collection of short stories. And then this book was a, a, a minor hit in horror circles and publishing circles last year. And um, it's well worth checking out if you haven't already. And also check out our wonderful podcast on the whole, the whole book. Um, however, this week we are looking at something very much inspired by this book and created by someone very close to Cinelit. I am your host, Adam Marsh, and I am joined by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. Hello, Daryl. Hi, Adam. Hi, everyone. So, Daryl, in addition to your excellent contributions to the Cinelit podcast, you are very much a 21st century renaissance man with his fingers in many pies. And now one of those pies is the BHF Book of Horror Stories. Would you like to explain what this is? Yeah, I will. The the closest that people might have as a reference to this is the old uh, pan book of horror stories, uh, that was uh, edited by Herbert Van Thal from the late 50s through to the late 80s. Great collection of horror stories, really gruesome covers, uh, very gruesome stories as well, a mixture of sort of classic uh, authors and new authors. And um, I was a member of a website for about 20 years um, called uh, BritishHorrorFilms.co.uk. It was run by a guy called Chris Wood, and it's it's fallen defunct, unfortunately, in the past uh, year or two. But um, it was an amazing online community. Everyone was on there discussing our, all our favourites, Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Witchfinder General, Hammer Films, all of that, you know. And uh, we had a really good community and we ended up sort of meeting up and getting together when, whenever we could, you know. And um, then Chris set up this forum on the website called Your Creations because he'd got wind that uh, as people were sort of discussing the films, one or two people were mentioning that they were writers themselves or that they were filmmakers or musicians or whatever. And um, he thought, let's tap into some of this talent. Let's do our version of the pan book of horror stories and we'll call it the bhf book of horror standing for british horror films and um invite the site users to write their own stories and chris did this and i i took a back seat on the the first couple of volumes which came out in sort of 2006 2007 because i was just sort of interested as a as a reader back then you know at that stage my writing was more in terms of non-fiction and in um, sort of film criticism and so on. And I'd, I'd never even attempted uh, film fiction apart from having written one unfilmed screenplay. But um, I bought these books anyway, and I watched the whole process of, of, of how they were sort of written and put together by Chris with uh, sort of outsider's fascination, you know. And then I bought the books and uh, they had great covers by a mate of mine called Paul, Paul Moody, who lives up in Edinburgh, who is by day a, a medical artist, one of the guys who draws all those pamphlets that you see in doctors' waiting rooms. But by night, he draws things like werewolves for book covers. So uh, um, Paul had done these amazing professional covers. So the books actually looked like the pan books of horror, you know. And um, and then the stories inside were great, even though they were largely written by amateurs. They were really good. Now, Chris did two volumes of this, as I say, about 15 years ago, planned a third volume. And what he said for the third volume is 
the first two had been just original stories, write a horror story and we'll publish it, you know. The third volume, he said, right, let's come up with a concept. Let's do stories that are based on characters or scenes or situations from British horror movies. So it was the Sean Hogan thing. It was what, what happened with England screaming all these years later. Now, book three, the BHF book three that was planned for 2007, all fell through eventually. And people had even written stories for it. You know, it, it just didn't happen. And then, as I say, the website gradually sort of got less and less traffic and, and unfortunately is now lying dormant. But things like Facebook, obviously, have sort of taken over now. And a lot of that old community are still sort of associating on social media now. And when Sean's book came out last year, I thought, this is great, you know, as people have heard us on the podcast raving about it. But it also sparked off this idea oh, hang on, wasn't Chris Wood going to do that as, as the next BHF book? Something along these sort of lines. So I thought, right, now's the time to revive that. We had a great response to book three. We had a couple of dozen people say, yeah, I'd love to get involved in this, love to write for it. And we had some amazing stories come in, uh, um, lumping together various different characters. Some Some of the stories riffed on just one particular film or one particular monster or one particular human character and some of the ones I really like are the ones where writers were combining five or six different movies and managing to get a sort of coherent narrative out of it you know, which is very much what Sean was doing in England screaming so uh, we had a success with that we made a lot of money for the NHS as well and um, on January the 1st this year I announced that uh, I wanted submissions for books four and five. I thought, let's be ambitious. Let's do the the uh, Guns N' Roses, Bruce Springsteen thing and uh, release two on the same day. Why not? These, these two are both, I've got different uh, topics. So the book four is again, horror, British based on British horror stories, um, characters, scenarios, etc. But book five is slightly different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We wanted to do that again with book four because we'd had such a great time on book three and uh, a lot of people were still in in that sort of mode and frame of mind of, oh, I've, I've got a story I want to tell about Dracula or about uh, Theatre of Blood or whatever film it may be, you know. But uh, this sort of led me to thinking, why don't we do, do two books? Because we can have one book that, that's a sort of sequel to book three and follows that Sean Hogan template again and, um, and allows us to sort of express our feelings about our favourite movies. But I thought, Let's do a book five where we ask people to do something a bit different. And I've kept it in the arts. I've kept it within the, the world of entertainment. What I asked people to do was pick a favourite song title, not necessarily even a favourite song, but just a favourite song title and use that as the title of your story. And I didn't ask again for the, the story to necessarily connect with the song or to even follow its lyrics or anything. It was just pick a cool title and write a horror story based on it. And, and indeed, you yourself have done one, Adam. I wrote two stories, one, one for book four and one for book five. For book four, I think my process might be similar to a lot of authors, but maybe maybe not horror fan authors, I guess. Um, my, my thought is I had a, I had a character, 
that I wanted to do as something with. And I had this character for many years and it was reading one of the stories in book three, but it was a comedy story based on the film Venom. Oh yeah, that was Neil Pike's Neil's uh, story. story. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, we're it's going to speak uh, to Neil there's... later. Yeah, it's called "There's No Business Like Show Business." It was reading that one that made me because that's not a horror story. That's a comedy. Oh, right. That's a comedy story set in a horror world. And I thought, well, that's actually that's more up my street. That kind of thing. And and then I remembered this character I had, and I thought, oh, oh, maybe that maybe I could do something with this. And my character was a pet assassin. Um, you can yeah. hire him to assassinate a pet. So he's sort, he's sort of the flip side of the coin to Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Yeah, yeah, kind of like. It's just like, you know, sometimes you just don't, you're moving house, you, your dog could live for another 15 years, you know, or you moved in with a partner and you hate their pets. And, you know, any any situation like that. And this guy is perfect. So he's he's kind of like the bottom end, the, the sort of like you know, inquiry agent, uh, making sh- small money photographing women in in, in Flagrante with their lovers and that kind of it's, it's that kind of world I was looking at and it was just like who would hire this guy so then obviously I started thinking well it needs to be a pet it can't be a monster because uh, then it'd be a monster assassin or a monster hunter so it has to be a pet so I came up with the idea of tying it in with Zoltan Hound of Dracula great Completely unaware that Zoltan Hound Dracula is not a British horror film. I just assumed it was. Wrote yeah. the whole story and then afterwards was like, oh crap, it's American. <laughs> yeah, I let that slide because your story's so good anyway. It's got that sort of film noir sort of element to it as well, which, which I know you love. I had fun writing that. But then then when I approached writing the, the musical, the music themed one, I, I it was it was a different approach to this. So I wrote an actual an actual horror story. Not massively scary. It's more of a like all ages style horror i mean i'm i'm i i i would like my son to read it you know maybe maybe when he's a little bit older but um it was it harkens back i've always had a fascination with the horror of inanimate objects i've written i've written uh three short films all around the horror of inanimate objects one's a briefcase one was an art gallery uh, and then I, I wrote a, a, a comedy show, which won quite a few awards at the time, about um, a pair of trainers. So um, I, I have I have this kind of like preoccupation with inanimate objects, basically, and, and, and bringing them to life. So Prince's Raspberry Beret was a perfect opportunity to to uh, to bring that story to life. So I, yeah, I, I had and I had fun writing the, the fifth for, for book five, definitely. Because obviously I'm more, I'm more predominantly a screenwriter. So writing prose was something I haven't done in many, many years. So getting back into that groove and uh, I, I did write an aborted story for volume four, which will probably never see the light of day because it's awful. But uh, one other thing to mention um, while we've got the, the opportunity is to say that as well as having a bunch of amateur writers on board, we've actually got an uber professional uh, we've got Mr. Lawrence Gordon Clark writing for us. And if you don't know the name Lawrence Gordon Clark, you will know the name A Ghost Story for Christmas. Lawrence was the guy behind the BBC's annual Ghost Story for Christmas every December between uh, 1971 and 78. The BBC would do one of these, um, usually an M.R. James adaptation, although they did they did the Charles Dickens the Signalman as well. Mm. All those great old shows from the 70s, like uh, The Ash Tree 
and uh, Lost Hearts and a warning to the curious. The guy who made those, Lawrence Gordon Clark, he's now in his 80s. He's still writing. And um, he has very, very kindly donated two stories for our books. And they are as fabulous as you'd expect. Well, that's great. I mean, it adds, adds a bit of uh, authenticity to our little scribbles. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, and puts the pressure on. You know, we, you know, we, we, we've got to compete with uh, a, a proper writer. You know. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, we, we're going to speak to some of the uh, other authors um, that are contributing stories to Books Four and Five. Our first up is uh, Neil Pike. Hello, Neil. Hi, Adam. We've been chatting with Daryl about how this project came up together, and uh, we're, we're going to turn over to some of the authors now. So, um, yeah, do you want to tell us how you came to the uh, to, to be submitting stories to these collections? Well, I had a I had the lucky coincidence of being able to talk to Daryl very early in the process of him deciding what book five was going to be all about, uh, and we had a conversation that was partly about his story, Disco Duck. Um, and as part of that conversation, we, we kind of started to think about the least disturbing, least confrontational songs you could possibly pick for a, a story collection like this. And we threw some names in there. And one of the things, one of the, the, the songs I threw in there was, was Welcome Home by Peters and Lee. Surely the least, it's your grandmother's favourite. So nobody's going to find anything about that upsetting. How can you write a horror story about Welcome Home? Yeah. Well, exactly that. And so setting myself the challenge of doing that. But it didn't come out of thin air. I think part of it was because it was it was almost a... It was constant background noise. I think it was released in 1973. Yeah. yeah. Some, somewhere around there. And for about three years, every time you turned on Pebble Mill at one, Peters and Lee were on. Every time you put local radio on, they were playing Peters and Lee. So it yeah, became because they they were they were big on they they'd worn opportunity knocks, hadn't they? Which was basically the the nineteen seventies version of the X Factor. I feel like I'm showing my age here because I have no clue what you are talking. It's just <laughs> words. They're just words put together. And I think they're sentences, but I have no clue what Opportunity Knox was. Pebble Mill at one, I have a vague recalling of that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Some, some of our older older listeners will, will know all this. <laughs> oh, for, the, for the younger ones, we need to do a podcast about Pebble Mill at one sometime. So yeah, maybe, it's like the maybe not. It was like the one show, but for people who were afraid of the real world, I think. Was... <laughs> so, Neil, you you were talking about the the ubiquity of Peters and Lee in in nineteen seventy three, though. That's right, and you know, I grew up in Manchester in ninety in, in the nineteen seventies, and for those people who kind of weren't there, it was a really weird time. We had a lot of kind of industrial strife and dispute. You know, we had a. a, a it, it felt I lived on a, a street which still had an area of bomb damage from the Second World War right at the very end of our street. You know, we had the Yorkshire Ripper kind of standing over the shadow of that, standing over the whole of the north of England at the time. So when you hear songs like that that take you back to a certain time and a place, you begin to imbue them with a whole bunch of kind of emotional stuff that they don't have in their own right. And I think that's where I came from with this. I, I don't think in the story there's anything that gives it a time, a time frame. You, you can't tell when it's set. I'm willing to bet everybody who reads it thinks it's set in 1974, just, just because of their familiarity with that song. 
Yeah. Although it's it's about a bunch of dodgy geezers, a bunch of dodgy gangsters, and they they never go out of fashion. We 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 talked about James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson on the podcast before, and uh, we've we've mentioned the the '90s gangster wave as well. So yeah. you know these characters are timeless. They are, and and I'll be honest, the sort of the the, the antagonist protagonist is a weird story because there's two there's kind of two not particularly nice creatures involved. One of which is this Mancunian gangster who is is basically Harold Shand, but without the class. He's 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 uh, he's a he's just an unadulterated thug, and you kind of want him to get his comeuppance. And that's right. I mean that that's a that's a he's a character from any gangster movie from the 1920s onwards, just yeah. one with a particularly craven set of instincts. And the other one was really, um, I mean, it was a, it's a, it's a piece of cosy catastrophe science fiction, really. It could be written. Yeah, by, this is uh, fate, fate to gray. This is, this is fate to gray. Um, the, the, this one, I mean, the, the first one isn't really informed by anything other than my kind of memories of that song and what it represented and how, how, you know, something that, you know, as I said, your grandmother could have bought from Woolworths had this weird undertone of kind of reminding me of a period that wasn't that wasn't great and and kind of felt odd and um and alienating. Fade to Grave, really, it's it's John Wyndham or or John Christopher. But it is a little bit more kind of cinematically influenced because when I decided I was going to write something like that, what I actually wanted to do was to give it a sense of um I'm a big I'm a big fan of um uh, two or three recent kind of uh, apocalyptic movies that aren't as that aren't the cliche, if you like. So I really like Blindness. The um, oh, I, can't, I can't even remember the name of the director now. Um, Daryl, help me out. Is it Fernando Morales? That's the one. Thank you. Yeah, the the Fernando Morales film. I really like Children of Men. And uh, and Daryl already knows that I'm a massive Hughes Brothers fan. So I actually am one of the few people who likes the Book of Eli. <laughs> and one of the uh, one of the things about all three of those movies is that they're they're kind of their apocalypse is kind of color coded. They all they're all either in sepia or in really washed out. They're shot in washed out colors. So I, I was thinking about when I wrote thinking about that when I wrote that this story, and it's not it's not got a happy ending, and it's not particularly jolly or action packed. It's kind of a slow burn. Sort of the end of the world in about three pages, seen through the eyes of the guy who has ended the world. Yeah, yeah, basically, uh, and it's kind of a morose, um, morose thing. It's not one you'd want to finish a book on, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it... now, Neil, you you work in uh, environmentalism, I know, and and um, and that that sort of feeds in a bit to um, your story. Um, you know, your 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 interests in film and in written fiction do seem to sort of cross over a little bit with uh, with your job, and um, and I, I think that that definitely shows in this story. Yeah, and it's one of those it's one of those things I think that. Um... Uh, colours quite a lot of what I write uh, and has done. I've written stories for previous volumes of this series and I would guess 50% of them are coloured by my interest and my job. Um, it gets increasingly difficult to tell any wrinkle on it, but um, it, it does. this one does feel a little bit closer to home than some of the others. It's not a, 
you know, it's not a nuclear war story. It's not a story about a meteorite hitting. It's it's a fairly mundane apocalypse, I suppose, is the best way of describing it. And one of those things that happens not because of people being, you know, particularly egregious or uh, or a, a cosmic event we've got no control over. It's just a bunch of people being dumb. Which is, if you if you ask me the question, how's the world going to end? That's probably going to be my answer. I suspect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of my stories for for book four has got it's one of those that uh, I mentioned when I was talking to Adam earlier on, where um, writers will often put seven or eight films together and manage to get a coherent narrative out of it. And one of my stories briefly references uh, Jean Roland's Grapes of Death and the. Um, Borgate Growl classic Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. And I think they they those two movies have something in common with your story, Neil, in that it's it's the apocalypse by accident sort of thing. It's it's people trying to develop a system or a piece of machinery or um a chemical or something to do one job and it ends up wiping out the planet, you know. Yeah. And, uh, um so yeah it's it it, it is it, it's it's uh yeah as you say it's very different to um uh sort of dr strange love or something or threads you know it's it's not it's, it's it's a more sort of focused more sort of almost personal apocalypse yeah. it, and and for the main character it genuinely is because you only ever see it from his perspective uh he doesn't go anywhere further than the local shop Basically, yeah. it's a story of him walking to and from the local shop, more or less. Yeah. I'm really selling it, aren't I? And you, you managed to make the opening of a can of peaches into something absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and and massively depressing. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that I think that's not a nice trend. We were discussing this on one of our podcasts recently about horror films. I think they've gone beyond the idea of having an happy ending now. I think people don't expect happy endings from horror films anymore or, or even horror stories. I think they expect it to be downbeat. They expect it to be miserable and, <laughs> and end badly. Um, now, they don't, no one ever expects a happy ending. I think there's, a, I think there's a, probably a room for a, a, a happy ending in horror to make a resurgence. I, I think, I, I think uh, Welcome Home has a, has a kind of a happy ending, depending on what your perspective yeah. is. Well, the the right the right people die in in that story. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, if that's your definition of a happy ending, then yeah, absolutely. I think it is in horror. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Um, it's, it's it's interesting to hear your um your process of coming to the story because like I I never thought about basing my story in the song. And obviously, particularly with the Peterson Lee one, it seems to have a much more of a, a rooted base into that story, particularly in evoking the nostalgia elements for you. With with me, it was just kind of like I've written the story. What can I title it? <laughs> that, kind, <laughs> that kind of attitude towards it. I kind of felt I had to do that because Daryl had told me about Disco Duck and how, as I'm hoping it will be, it'll be like the New York Quacker. <laughs> I think I think uh, at that point then I thought well if I'm going to do this and I've got and I've picked a story that is going to be incredibly difficult in some respects to to turn some to turn into something sinister because you know if you even if you listen to the lyrics about a bloke welcoming his girlfriend stroke wife home from 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 where we don't really know so I could have gone down that route. <laughs> 
um, and what did she look like when she came back? But yeah. it, it, it's difficult to do that. And then the only the only hook I could find really was how I remembered that song playing in the background, whilst a whole bunch of stuff as a kid I just didn't understand was going on, and how frightened that made me feel as a kid. So that nostalgia was really the only hook I had, mm. I guess. Otherwise, I'd have really struggled, I think, with that song. I'd have just I'd have just gone back to Dallas and said, "I'm doing something else." Yeah. <laughs> We are joined now by Ian Taylor, one of the authors of uh, five stories spread out over the two volumes of uh, BHF Book of Horror Stories. So you've you've contributed two for book four and three for book five. Similar to me, I contributed one for each. I I like to spread the wealth, you know, (laughs) share the love. Uh, was Was it a similar process to you or was it like, I really want to write those music ones or I really want to write the film ones? Well, I'd written I'd written for volume three previously, and that had um, I think reawakened a big love for the fiction writing because I I did a fair bit of that when I was I suppose in my late teens, early twenties, uh, which seemed to be going quite well, and then uh, I just let uh, beer get in the way, really, I think, and, uh, and 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 left it all behind for a very long time. And then when I started writing again, it was it was nonfiction stuff. So really, when I got the opportunity for the third one, that really reawakened the the, the love of fiction, and, and I quite fancied having a go again. So when four and five were announced, I thought that's brilliant. I've got I've got plenty of ideas. It was just a question of twisting them and tweaking them so that they would fit in with the uh, the remit for each volume. And uh, yeah, it was a joy. Uh, it was going to be two two for each, but then at, at the last minute, I was just having a Facebook conversation with Daryl about music, I think, and that inspired the last one where he said, well, go on, you've got time. So I ended up doing another. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm glad you did because it's, uh, it's, it's a really good piece, that. I find it quite interesting because I, obviously I come from a from a more a more fiction writing background. I write screenplays, that kind of thing, and it, it seems a lot of the guys that are, guys and girls that have been contributing to this have come from a critical film criticism kind of angle and are branching out into fiction. Was that the same case with you, or with Ian? Or was it always a double? Were you always writing too? Always thinking too? When I was young. I was always writing stuff. I was always somebody who, um, I love books, I love films, I love television, uh, I love football, I love music, but it, it wasn't enough to just enjoy watching it or listening to it. I had to be writing stuff about it. So I was I was writing little stories, I was creating little comics, I was even creating my own little football programmes. So it was all always just, just part of the same greediness really to be to be part of the stuff I loved rather than just being a, an onlooker wanted to get involved writing your own fiction I think is very much wearing your heart on your sleeve a lot more and that's more of a, a leap of faith and, and just hoping people are going to accept it and think it's okay mm. so I think without the non-fiction stuff I might not have had the confidence to go back into the fiction and certainly it helped that a lot of the people who were involved with it were people who uh, I'd met and got to know and like through writing about films. Oh, fantastic. And so you, you, you obviously thought if, if they, if they can do it, I can. <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 
Did you also find that Bolton Wanderers plummet down the divisions freed up a bit of time to allow you to focus on writing? Uh, absolutely not, because being a Bolton fan, uh, my dad took me to my first match when we were in the lower divisions when I was seven. Uh, so I've never known anything else. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, no Bolton yeah. about one one sense I get from your fictional writing is you you manage to make it very autobiographical. You've not written about uh, going to watch Bolton play uh, a, a game or anything yet, but uh, some of the stories you have written <laughs> seem very sort of personal to you. Like eleven fifty nine, which you've written, which is uh, um, titled after the Blondie track, and then yeah. you've also you've also got a, a strong theatre background, and you've written uh, behind a painted smile, which is. It's it's like the inside number nine episode of the book, you know. It's uh, I can I can I can see Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton in those parts. But again, that that all that all comes from very much from your own background. So, how important is it to you to 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 sort of feed that into into your fiction? Yeah, I think it is, and it's it's the old advice, isn't it, that you you should write about what you know. And I think that's what was always predominant in my mind. But at the same time. Certainly in the early days, I was probably a bit too lazy to go in for much research of other things. So it was just just very handy to write about stuff I, uh, I knew. But I found early on that, particularly if I was upset or annoyed about anything, that helped me to uh, to write stuff that was a bit more vivid. And, and hopefully it, it does come across. Yeah, that that definitely works. I think I think everyone's a winner there because it's obviously therapeutic for you to do that, yeah. and it's entertaining for the reader. I I will say, you know, it really does come across as that it, it comes across as very strongly personal, you know. And I think I think a reader can sort of identify with that. And we've all had situations similar to the ones that you described. Now, on on the on the personal side of things, you I think you also bring that into your um, stories where we've asked writers to write about specific films or specific film characters, because you you wrote one of the best-received pieces for book three, which was not really a horror story as such, but it was a great personal study of one particular shot of the actor Peter Cushing. And then for the new book, uh, you've written a really great story that uh, sort of ties in with the, the Hammer film Plague of the Zombies. So, again, do you see all of that as as being stuff you can write about in the same sort of way because it's so personal to you and you've got a connection with it. I think so. I think with the Peter Cushing one, the thing was it started off as something quite different. It just started off as a a paragraph that I'd used uh, at work. I'm a secondary school teacher by profession. And um, I was trying to convince GCSE pupils that they could write a lot about a little. Uh, in an exam, they might be given a picture and it might just be a close-up of a face. And and I was trying to convince them that, yes, you can write a lot of good stuff uh, about just that, and they wouldn't have it. So um, I thought, right, I'll, I'll try and show them. And uh, I immediately thought of that photograph of, uh, of Cushing in um, Satanic Rites of Dracula, which is one of my favourites, uh, film and the actual picture itself. So I did a paragraph and 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 they got it and and it helped and and that just gathered dust at school for a very long time until until that project came along. But then once I started writing it, where it went was somewhere I didn't expect, which was stop being about the film and it became about the actor and uh, in particular 
I suppose a few of the ways in which which I've always loved and respected him as as an actor and uh, perhaps as a person, although obviously I didn't know him personally. The love of Hammer it goes back, obviously, as with a lot of us, to uh, to childhood days, and it's it's a very war warm cozy place for me now so it's nice to revisit that and it's very easy to to tap into it I suppose. How easy was it choosing which films that you were going to look at and try and base a story in it or inspired by a story like that because I, I mean I, I could spend hours thinking well, which film am I going to do and then it literally eats up all the time I'm supposed to be writing a story thinking about which bloody film to set it in you know. <laughs> well for the volume three, uh, I did a piece which was um, linked to an American wealth in London. And that seemed very easy, really, because I'd actually written the story when I was about 20, and it wasn't about an American wealth in London at all. It was completely different characters. But as soon as I started thinking about what I would like to write about, I realised that was one of my favourite films of all time. Uh, yes, I'd really like to write about that. And it just suddenly struck me that that... The story I had written originally was as much a romance as anything else, which I think is is really quite true of an American wealth as well. They just seem to go together. So that was uh, serendipitous, really, I suppose. For the, for the volume four, again, I, I had ideas that were already on paper and I've been for a long time, but they came from two different places. Um, the, the voodoo favour story, that came about because I fancied trying to do something a little bit more old-fashioned, like um, the old stories that, that I grew up reading. I just wanted to try and do something a little bit different from what I normally did, which was, as Daryl said before, perhaps a little bit more about my age group and my my time. I wanted to try something different. So I immediately knew, right, let's try and fit this in with a story that's got something to do with voodoo or zombies. And I, I looked at a few the white zombie if i walk with a zombie and they just didn't seem to fit again it's just, it's just something just a little bit of lightning struck really and uh i thought hold on a minute this this doesn't have to be a story as such it can just be it could end up being um more of a prologue to something else now ian you mentioned uh that you you'd considered uh other other films in the same sort of field there now one thing i think you you've captured in the story is it works as a prequel to plague of the zombies but you also i think managed to hark back to the classic uh black and white hollywood zombie as well there are there are scenes in that that could be lifted from something like i walk with a zombie or white zombie so um we're, we're, we're obviously focusing on British films for, for this book project, but yes. um, like Adam, you you managed very cleverly and brilliantly, I think, to, to sort of bring in these earlier influences as well. Was that something you recognised in Plague of the Zombies, that it, it rather, rather than being a sort of precursor to the zombie film that we know nowadays... Do you see Plague of the Zombies as being a, a, a film that's sort of the last of its kind rather than the first of its kind? Do you know what? I, I find it more a bit of both, really, I think. It's kind of when Hammer was um, perhaps changing and heading towards even bloodier times and and, and uh, there's the zombies rising at the graves and the, uh, the decapitation of Jacqueline Pierce. That feels to me like it's a bit more in keeping with what Romero was about to do. But yeah, it it is. It's 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 traditional. 
and the whole thing with that story anyway was as i say my um my wish to go back to something a little bit more traditional it's nice to have a zombie story that's uh it's still about the old voodoo rituals and all of that rather than the uh, eating brains or whatever yeah i think there's a, there's a there's a layer layer that's missing from most modern zombie movies in that it, it, it just, it's just it is just a mindless monster um yeah. i think some of the old ones imbue it with a bit more uh, i don't know a bit more like dare i say class or, I dare, yeah. right, or, or, right. or maybe i maybe maybe not class now but maybe mystery is a bit more part of it there's, there's something more mysterious about um zombies pre-1967 or 68 yeah well yeah. It, it does it has this sort of boy's own sort of uh, quality to it Okay, we are now joined by Celine Paxton Brooks, who has contributed two stories to the two volumes, one for volume four and one for volume five. Hello, Celine. Hi, nice to see you. Cool. So um, you've put on your writing influences as uh, Shirley Jackson and Angela Carter, two very evocative, uh, spectral, folkloric style um, uh, writers. Is that representative in your writing as well? Um, very much so, yes. Um I've always sort of been interested in folklore and fairies and um, I did that as part of my dissertation for my degree and I just love that style of writing, you know, the, the real mysterious, could be, could not be true sort of writing. Um, yeah, I love it. Little glimpses into another world sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. So, so Daryl, what was it about uh, Celine's stories that um, leapt off the page and wanted you to include them in the uh, in the two volumes? Well, it was Celine's attitude initially. We've known each other for quite a long time because we we sort of bumped into each other over the years at places like the Gothic Film Society, didn't we? And uh, yeah. event, events at the Cinema Museum and so on. So, uh, um, so we 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 sort of moved in the same sort of circles whenever I went down to London, and uh, Celine would be one of the people that I bumped into, and. Um, then um, when I was sort of uh, pitching the idea of doing these two new books, um, Celine was one of the people who I don't think you'd ever written fiction before or not for many years. And, and you would said you'd never done any artwork as well. And you sort of told me that you you wanted to have a go at both. And that, for me, is what these projects are all about. So what, what made you do that, Celine? And how pleased were you with the results? Well, I think it was lockdown, really. You know, everyone says that lockdown has been, you know, pretty awful and it's changed the way we live. Um, but for my partner and myself, we found it an incredibly creative time. Um, we've just bought a huge Victorian villa in Great Yarmouth and we've been doing it up and we've just been watching films and we've just been really enjoying ourselves. Um, and when I saw the, you know, the post that Daryl put on, I just thought, oh, could I give this a go? It's something I'd never done before. Um, and I think my first story, which was Wuthering Heights, I'd never even considered writing a story before. I'm a primary school teacher and I teach writing to five to 11 year olds. But I'd never had a go myself. And and so I I just said to Daryl, can I have a go? And if it's no good, we don't have to put it in. Um, and I sent it off to him. 
And a couple of my friends who I asked if they would read through just, you know, just to check I was sort of on the right lines. And they all came back really positively. And then I thought, well, I think I'm going to have a go at doing some illustration and um, did that. And the rest is history. So (laughs) they say I've now been asked to um, illustrate another book of short horror stories, which is coming out next year of 13 tales um, and I'm doing an illustration for each one of those um, and I was speaking to um, somebody at the weekend about a, another book that um, they want illustrations for so I've sort of astounded myself really because I didn't think I had it in me and I I've just had a go and I really loved doing it. Your illustrations are fantastic. They're really, you put Edward Gorey on your on your influences list for the artwork, and that yeah really pops out in the sort of like the black ink pencil style lined uh, drawings, and really evocative uh, pictures. Yeah, well, thank you because I love Edward Gorey, and I did actually go to art school in the eighties, but I studied graphic design, and I became a magazine designer. Um, and that's actually when I met Daryl, because I, I used to work near Holborn and we used to go to the Gothique and and then it moved and we just got talking. And um, I'm really pleased you say that because I've always thought I was a, a pretty rubbish drawer, to be quite honest. So, um, I think I think once you get more confident, you stop calling yourself a drawer, and and, and you become an artist at that point. Exactly, <laughs> you're still on that crossover yeah. bit, yeah. Yeah, but I'm absolutely loving it, and I'm I can't thank Daryl enough for letting me have a go. Really, well, that that makes me feel really good because that for me is my sort of drive on the project is to get people who are inexperienced in these fields and to get them sort of you know coming out of their shell almost or doing something they've not done before or not done for years we've got some writers on on the project who are more experienced and have submitted stories to anthologies and things before but the thing I love is is when people sort of rise up and say yeah as, as you just said, Celine, I'll, I'll have a go, you know. And one, one thing I love about your stuff is you, you put absolutely no pressure on yourself by uh, deciding to write a story called Wuthering Heights. And I was just about to say that. It's like, you don't, if you're unsure, you don't start with one naming something after the great tombs of fiction, you know. Tell us how that came about, because, of course, we had this whole thing with book five uh, being the sort of music based thing. So you, you've almost sort of accidentally called called the story Wuthering Heights, I guess. Well, well, I think that's the bit that drew me in, really, the music. I'm a, a huge Kate Bush fan um, and have been since I was 12 years old. And so I love her writing and she's very much her, her songs include a lot of British horror movies, which again, I absolutely adore. So when I thought about it, I thought, well, what am I going to write about? And then I thought, well, I need to write about something that I know and love really well. And of course, I've read Wuthering Heights um, several times, and I love Kate Bush's music. And so I thought, I'm going to do something on sort of that sort of ilk but I didn't want to copy so I wanted to do something that brought both of those really creative people into my work but that's something that was completely different and I'm hoping that that's what I did I I haven't read the story but I'm assuming it's it's the author and the musician meeting in a pub 
and get into a fight. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> no, it's nothing like that at all. If you imagine a, a lot of people nowadays get together as friends and they hire a cottage in the middle of nowhere for a birthday party or, you know, some sort of reason that they get together. They perhaps haven't seen each other for a long time. Um, and then things start to go a little bit wrong. Um, and someone, as there always is, says, I know, let's have a seance. <laughs> and I'll leave it there. So you'll have to read to find out. That sounds like a good title for a story. I know, <laughs> let's have a seance. <laughs> dot, dot, it's dot. a very good amicus <laughs> yeah. line, that one. <laughs> absolutely cool um so what, what was the what was the inspiration behind the uh interesting title tansy's poppets for volume four well as i've said before i'm a huge british horror film fan and i had lots of different ideas of ways that i could go but i wanted to do something that was that little bit obscure that perhaps people hadn't sort of seen or heard of it's not one of those films that immediately jumps up into into you and I again like I did with Wuthering Heights I brought it straight into you know contemporary life and and imagined what would happen if Tansy who is the the main one of the main characters in the yeah, film the, the, the film being uh, Night, Night of the Eagle of course yeah, sorry, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um what would happen if one of her descendants got a magic book? And and what would happen, you know, with all the sort of voodoo and, and things, what would happen in her life? And I've been quite lucky with both of the stories. I just sat down and wrote. I didn't really plot anything out. It just sort of magically appeared. So, um, yeah, I hope people really enjoy it. But you need to watch the film. This is what I've said to people. You need to go out and find that film and watch it first and then read the story and it all makes sense. Again, you, you, you've absolutely keyed into to what I want with the book there. The whole idea with book three from last year and this new volume, book four, the first of our two new volumes, is to um, to try and get people to read our stories and enjoy them, but to, to go back to the sources as well and look at, look at the source material. And uh, I think your story is great for that because, as you say, it, it almost works as a sort of belated sequel to Night of the Eagle. And and I think uh, readers would get so much more out of it if they watch the film the, the day before they read your story. Yeah. I think it's one of those ones interesting, like we've spoken to a couple of authors already now, and most of the ones we've spoken to already kind of had their story already and then kind of found a way to shoehorn it into the horror story. Whereas you've obviously come from a point of view where it's just like, well, I want to do something around this and how can I do it? And, and the story's been created from that. And I think that's fascinating angle um, yeah I mean that's the way I teach the children to write in school you know take something um that you really love and look at lots of different angles first and then just see what happens and then you know I've really enjoyed it I've not written since um I hope to write again I hope people enjoy it enough to to say to me I think you need to 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 do some more but I just really enjoyed doing it. And as I say, you know, Daryl is such an inspiration. And I never, ever in my wildest dreams thought I would have 
writing and illustrations actually produced in a book. We are now joined by uh, Samantha Crosby, who has contributed three stories for uh, the new uh, BHF volumes four and five. We're asking all the authors this, but how do you, particularly with volume, the ones you've done, you've done for volume four, how you approached uh, writing those stories? Did you already have a story in mind that then you then thought, well, which film can I squeeze it into? Or did you take direct inspiration from a film and uh, the story came from that? I think with a lot of the things that I write, I, I, an idea comes to me immediately. And uh, I was thinking about 60s and 70s horror films and I thought, carry on screaming. And then Carrion popped into my head and I thought, let's go with that. I am a huge <laughs> fan of a pun. Um, already, <laughs> I'm loving this. <laughs> Especially one that takes a joke and turns it into something sinister. So it's, so it's like a pun in reverse. Yes. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's very much an immediate thing with me. An idea comes, and I'll just write it, and there is no editing whatsoever. I just go with what I've, uh, what pops into my head. I think that works in your stories, Sam, because they have a real sort of flow to them and a sort of urgency, you know. And you can sort of all the I I didn't know that you did that, but you you can sort of tell that there's some of that in there. That there is this drive to sort of once you've got the story started, it sort yeah. of rushes to the end, you know. Now, one thing I wanted to sort of ask about is. Um, You've declared your influences, and I know from from uh, knowing you for some years online, that you've, you're very much influenced by um, artists like Kate Bush, films yes. like Company of Wolves, and a lot of a lot of that sort of classic style of horror and the sort of ethereal and that sort of thing. But your your stories seem a complete contrast to that. They're they're much harsher and they're much more in the um what has become known recently as as um, stories in the uh, in the psychotic women vein. There was a great great book written by the uh, Canadian um, filmmaker Kia Lajeunesse a couple of years ago called House of Psychotic Women. And she she had basically told her own life story and her, her sort of story of abuse and, and mistreatment in her own household growing up and then set that against lots and lots of reviews of films like Repulsion and Three Women and things like that you know and your two stories for, for the new books um, Carrie and Screaming and um, Angie Baby which is your one for the music book both feature these sort of psychotic women characters. So given that you've got these influences that are maybe a little bit more classical, what appeals to you about this sort of character? I, I think I, I tend to, if I read something like, obviously uh, a big fan of Faye Weldon and people and Susan Cooper as well, I tend to think, what would I do with the people that they haven't done and then take it that little bit further? And so be a little bit more aggressive shall we say <laughs> and I tend to I, I like to up, up it a notch uh, for want of a better expression so I, I'd like I, I love the the way that they write but I also think in the back of my head what would I do what would I do with that story and I tend to take it that little bit further so it's like the, the spinal tap approach to writing then I guess yes yeah so again, that's that's the uh, that's the rocker in you coming out, which is the, yes, the, other, yes. the other thing you're famous for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, uh, when when I pitched the idea of uh, we we were going to do a, another book on 
based on sort of, uh, you know, great British horror films. But then I picked the music one as well. And I knew that you would be one of the people that appealed to because you've got a history of uh, playing in bands and so on and being yeah. around the, 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 the sort of music business. So um, of, of the two books, was that the one that sort of grabbed you this time? I did have to think about that one. I had several ideas um, and then that one just popped into my mind for, again, like I say, these things have just occurred to me. It's it's quite difficult to say, but I I think it did appeal to me because obviously, as you know, music's very important to me. And uh, I I did have several other ideas as well. There were a couple of Ramones ones, but that really, really appealed to me. And I think it was because when I was growing up, it was a very important song to me and there was something yes. something about the nastiness in it that yeah, really Baby appealed. by Helen Reddy yeah, yes. yeah yeah it is as you say it's a very very sort of I I, I must have been about 10 or 11 when that came out mm. and I remember hearing it on on like the top 20 rundown on, on the radio on a Sunday night and I'm sure you'll agree it it, it sounded a lot starker and a lot different to the Osmonds yes and very much else so yes and I basically like nasty women. <laughs> <laughs> now, one one thing one one thing about the story is I didn't ask people necessarily to use the lyrics of the song as a template for the story. You're one of the people who has. What what made you what made you do that rather than just use the title and then go off on on tangents? I thought it fitted in very well with the 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 actual theme of the song and the theme of my character. And again, like you say, I think I do have this very strong female characters in all, everything I write. And that that was one of the main ideas of the story. And like I say, you know, nasty women that kill people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I, I love I love the little worlds that you create in your stories because they're 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 clearly set in um, I guess places that you know or or sort of heightened versions of places that you're familiar with. But you do get a real sense of of the sort of bricks and mortar when you're reading your stuff. I can actually see the the buildings and especially the sort of dank cellars and the the dark corridors and and things where where the where all the situations and scenes play out is is that sense of environment and place important to you when you oh, very much so yes I have a very concrete idea of the environment that the people are in so uh, for example when you've got uh, in Angie baby when she's walking down the road I've got a very clear vision in my head of what the road looks like the street lights the houses at the side of her I really really have that very clear in my mind I think that's very important because otherwise I think you kind of lose a sense of the plot in a certain way. Unless you can envisage that in your own mind, the story tends to become adrift somehow, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Now, are these are these sort of based on real places that you know, or, or is it more of a sense of you creating a, a, a world of your own? Probably a world of my own. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you you certainly you certainly do convey that um, uh, the the intention that you've got there of uh, of setting up this world and really really being descriptive about the actual sort of makeup of the buildings and the lighting and so on. that definitely comes across. I must say, it's uh, extremely well Thank done. You. Very yeah, good. and I, I think that's really important in the story because I think it's 
if somebody can envisage that in their own mind, what you're trying to convey, put people in a particular setting, I think that's very important. Yeah, I think definitely short stories more so than, well, not more so, but definitely short stories. You've got to immediately grab them yeah, yeah, and put them exactly. into that world so yeah. you can get on with it. Because you can get on with terrifying them, you know. It's like we, <laughs> we, we ain't got long, many pages here now. We want to terrify people. So, uh, or you know. killing them off in my place. <laughs> oh, in this case, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cool, lovely. Well, I think the book's going to be available, uh, if not now, they will be available fairly soon to order. Yeah, the books are available right now from lulu.com or you can get ebooks from uh, payhip.com. And um, uh, we've got all the links on Facebook, uh, on, on my own page, Daryl Buxton, or on the BHF Book of Horror Stories dedicated site, also on Facebook, so you can find all the uh, purchase links there. And all the money goes to the charity, right, Daryl? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the last book we did, we made uh, a few a few hundred quid for the National Health Service, and this time we're splitting the money between the NHS and a charity called Angel Man UK, which is being supported by uh, two filmmaking friends of mine, uh, Anna and MJ Dixon, who are a couple that I know from... Uh, the Horror on Sea Festival in Southend, and they're raising money for Angel Man. And I've I've said that uh, I'll be one of the people who helps to chip in and help them to raise funds. So um, hopefully we can uh, we can send a few quid their way. But the books are available right now. You can get all the links in the places that I've said online. Great stuff. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and yeah, we will speak to you soon. Take care.